Yes and no. I've said dad numerous times when he's done other things wrong, like wear a sport jacket and read the newspaper at Michigan meets instead of watching my teammates and wearing maize and blue. But we'll get to that later. (laughs) No, I, I never did. You know, my dad and my mom, both of them were very good at keeping their roles as parents separated from being like the parent coach or having suggestions like, honey, you should try this skill. My parents never did that. And I think that's truly part of why I succeeded in the sport is that they knew nothing about it except that it made me happy and I had fun doing it and I enjoyed it. Hi, I'm Pete McCall. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of the All About Fitness podcast. That voice you just heard is one of the guests for this episode, All-American gymnast and now author, Ms. Olivia Karras. Now, this is a special Olympic edition of All About Fitness, where it's not only Olivia, but also her father, Jim, who you heard reference to in that clip. Side note, as a girl dad myself, and my girls are still young, I know that I have plenty, plenty of those dads in my future, which is why I enjoyed that clip and is why I chose it for the introduction. Jim Karras is a personal trainer, a New York Times bestselling author, a fitness studio owner, and a lifestyle expert in Chicago who promotes exercise as an integral component of a healthy lifestyle. His daughter, Olivia, fell in love with the sport of gymnastics from an early age and pursued her passion to the point of earning a scholarship to the University of Michigan where not only was she a member of a team that won three Big Ten championships, but she was also recognized with multiple All-American honors for her contributions to those teams. Jim and Olivia teamed up to write the book, Confessions of a D1 Athlete, to help both parents and kids navigate the rigors of elite competitive sports. This book is a fascinating insight into what it takes to progress from local competition all the way to the national stage as a member of a competitive collegiate team. Now, there are three reasons why I wanted to do this interview. Number one, as I mentioned, I'm a girl dad. And selfishly, I wanted to get some insights into how I can be a better father for my girls. And Olivia was helpful in providing that. Jim too. But really, I thought it was helpful just to get their insights on their relationship throughout the process. Now, number two, I was interested to hear how Jim, who's a personal trainer, helped his daughter navigate her athletic career since he knows about fitness. And I don't know if my daughters have any aspirations to achieve the same level, but I wanted to get his insights into how he navigated that relationship between parents and coaches, knowing a little bit more about exercise than the average parent. And number three, and this is most important, this this is the reason why I wanted to do the interview. Many of you listening probably are at the age where you have kids who play sports. And now the primary theme of All About Fitness is to help you use exercise to enhance your quality of life. But because I recognize that many of us who may have kids that are, that are playing sports and playing competitive sports, when I have the opportunity, I do like to go into the topic of youth fitness so I can give you more information to help them. That's a part of me helping you enhance your quality of life is helping you understand how to navigate conditioning for youth sports. I may not know youth sports in general, but I do know about strength and conditioning. And I want to help you navigate and find the right conditioning programs for your kids because there is a severe risk. You've heard me interview coaches on here like like Coach Mike Boyle. And we talk about our concern that some kids might be overtrained or they might not be trained the right way for their sports. 
And so that's one of the things I try to bring to you on the podcast is you give you more insights in that process, into that process so you can help your kids achieve their greatest potential. And that's exactly why I wanted to have Jim and Olivia on to talk about their book, Confessions of a D1 Athlete. Because after going through it and after flipping through it and talking with them, this is a must read for any of you out there who have kids who aspire to be competitive athletes or to reach the highest levels of competition. So on this episode of All About Fitness, it's Father Jim and daughter Olivia Karras discussing their book, Confessions of a DM1 Athlete. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today on All About Fitness, we're speaking with both Jim and Olivia Karras. They're, did you guys write this together, Confessions of a Division One Athlete? How did that work? Well, we took turns writing chapters and we would, before we started the project, we actually kind of started recounting old stories, experiences from when she was little, when she was in club gymnastics, when she, of course, competed for the University of Michigan. And from starting to play with it, it started to take form and shape. But no, we lobbed each chapter back and forth and then we'd read it aloud and let the other one edit it with us. So it was very much a collaborative process. That, that's cool. And, and Olivia, did you ever did you ever imagine you write a book with your dad? I don't know if I ever imagined I'd write one with him. I knew that I wanted to write a book one day, and and I definitely loved to write. I was a creative minor, creative writing minor at Michigan, um, and so I I knew from pre college in middle school that I loved writing, and the timing worked. Um, dad has an amazing resume of being an author. He's a number one New York times bestselling author. So he knows what he's doing and it ended up being a great collaborative process together. He helped guide me through it. I brought my own perspective, but to answer your question, no, I never thought I'd write a book with my dad, but I'm glad I did. At what age did you start gymnastics? Like a lot of, I'm sure a lot of parents got their kids into gymnastics and what age did you get started in it? And at what age did the light bulb kind of switch on and it becomes something different? So I started gymnastics in mommy and me classes. My mom um, took me to classes when I was, I don't know, two or three, maybe. Um, and it was a great opportunity for me to just like let go of all this energy that I had. And I was always an energetic child. 
I love to jump on anything I saw, climb on anything um, at may it be playgrounds or the couch, whatever it was, I loved to just move and I loved being on the go. And so I, I guess you could say I started gymnastics, then everyone does mommy and me classes or like classes at a gym, but I ended up doing classes at the gym that I stayed at for with the same coach my entire career and was picked from the class to try out for the pre-team, tried out for the pre-team, loved it, stuck with it, ended up having a coach that I wasn't too fond of, quit for a little bit, and then came back probably when I was like seven or eight. So I did take a little bit of time away from it, but I would say that I've been a gymnast pretty much my entire life. And then when I started recognizing this is something I'm actually not half bad at and I could do moving forward, I must've been like 13 when I started realizing that this was something that I could do it's much more than just an after school activity to hang out with my friends. It became a lifestyle and a choice that I was going to make moving forward that could potentially bring me to a university. See that, that that's cool to hear that story. Now, Jim, the question I have, and, and I've had other personal trainers and, and coaches on who have kids that, that have ascended up through, through various levels of sport. But as a father, how did you disassociate your profession as a trainer while watching Olivia get involved in gym gymnastics? Well, it's interesting, Peter, because her original coach, which really did groom her to be an absolutely magnificent competitor and gymnast, she and I did not get along when it came to how sometimes she went about coaching Olivia. And I say this all the time, and I say it frequently in the book, you have to realize when you give your child over to a coach, you have a co-parent because that coach is gonna have more face time and potentially more influence than you, the both parents may have over the direction of the child and everything else. I could see that she loved it. I could see that she was good at it. Um, I didn't know about all the injuries, Peter. She kept some of these injuries and some of the pain to herself, which in writing the book, I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, dad, I was in a lot of pain. So, but I did see her being coached properly when it came to the physicality of the sport. And I must give her credit, emotionally, she also kept Olivia really calm when the competitions got tough. Because as you know, they go up in levels and they go up in difficulty. So I just tried to stay back. I just tried to make sure truly a lot of her recovery was well tended to. I was actually the first cryotherapy business back in 2013 in Chicago and the eighth in the country. So mm -hmm. Olivia has spent thousands of hours in the freezer and thousands of hours <laughs> with the elephant actually being frozen on her, her shoulder and her wrist and her ankle and you name it. So I jumped in with my area of expertise, but I left most of the coaching to her coaches and the Michigan staff is truly exceptional. All of them involved with her. Well, I'm, I'm sure that's hard for any parent, right? Is parents want to be involved in their kids' athletic endeavors and want to be involved. But I think for, for, for guys like you, or for people like you and I, Jim, I think we, we know a little bit about exercise and fitness. It can be hard to kind of rein it in. Did you ever, Olivia, as a daughter, did you ever have to say, dad? I mean, I mean I'm sure there are plenty of dad moments, but what, in terms of working with a coach, did you ever have to say, dad, let me sort it out with my coach. I kind of have an idea of what I want to do. 
Yes and no. I've said dad numerous times when he's done other things wrong, like wear a sport jacket and read the newspaper at Michigan meets instead of watching my teammates and wearing maize and blue, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, no, I, I never did. You know, my dad and my mom, both of them were very good at keeping their roles as parents separated from being like the parent coach or having suggestions like, honey, you should try this skill. My parents never did that. And I think that's truly part of why I succeeded in the sport is that they knew nothing about it except that it made me happy and I had fun doing it and I enjoyed it. And there were days that sucked as in every sport, as in any side hustle, um, anything. You know, there are days you want to give up. And my parents never said to me, you must keep going. They always were like, do you need to stay home for a day? Or do you need to not go to practice early that day and take a, you know, maybe go a little later and give yourself some leeway between school and practice. And so I'm really lucky that they did that. There were some times for sure on the parent side where my coach would say, you know, you can't miss practice on a Friday. We have a big meet in a couple of weeks and dad would have an event that he wanted me to go to. And that would not go over well. Sometimes when I said, I can't go, my coach wants me to be at practice and he would kind of have to be like, well, I need you there. And I was like, I I can't, you know, in gymnastics, if you take a day off, it's like taking a week off. I mean, you, you get pushed back heavily. And so never though, in the sense of like, you need to be training harder, doing more things. My parents were very separated in that way. Well, that's good. And the question I kind of the way I was going to ask that question is, is for you, Jim, what was it? Did you have, there's that phrase, you know, it's, it's harder to rein in a wild stallion than it is to kick a stubborn mule in the rear, right? If for you as a father with, with, a, with a high-performing athlete like Olivia, which was it? Did you have to rein her in, meaning let's, let's, it's okay to back off once in a while because even hearing that, that if you miss a day of training, is like missing a week. I think you and I can both go like, nah, I don't think it's gonna set you back that much. But if you could talk about that a little bit, which was harder for you, being able to just set back and, and kind of rein her in? I mean, because obviously you didn't have to motivate her. No, I did not at all. The hardest part was giving her balance. Her original coach and club was Eastern European. You're owned by Eastern Europe, wherever she happened to be at the time. You don't really go to school that much. And I had to help Olivia balance school, a social life, training, competing. That was a far more difficult part. In terms of reining her in, she was always a wild child running around all the time ever since she was a little girl. And so we always knew she needed movement. But to be honest with you, in the DNA of both of my children, because Olivia has a younger brother, Evan, who's almost 21. If they don't exercise, they're nuts. Me too. So we really mentally need the exercise and the movement and the training as much as we do physically. So no, um, her coach did a very good job of giving her the skills. Olivia actually, as she talks about in the book, wanted to do more than she let her do. So she did a good job of making sure she didn't hurt herself and go too fast. Well, I, and I, I appreciate you bringing up the background of the coach. It, it was Coach Olga, right? I mean, I'm, okay, because Eastern European, I, I think I'm a big fan of the Soviet method. I, I've studied a lot of it. I've interviewed one or two people on here who, who had coached in the Soviet method. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Why is there a stigma? I guess the question I had is why is there a stigma around Eastern European gymnastic coaches? I mean, this goes back years to the Corellis, I think. I don't know if I'm saying the name right. But there's always this, this stigma around like the Eastern European gymnastic coaches. What is it about that background and that experience that, that has them stand out at a higher level when it comes to gymnastics? 
you want me to take this first, Olivia? No, I can take it. I think it's a little bit twofold. I think, first of all, dad kind of touched on it. In the Ukraine, where my coach was from, they only did gymnastics. They literally went to college to, they call it to university to get like a gymnastics degree in like fitness and like being an athlete. That was part of the mentality of their culture that when you give into the Olympic level, the elite level athletics, you are like a slave to athletics. That's just how the culture was. And it produced gymnasts like Oka Corbett, Nadia Komanichi, Lilia Podkopaeva, like all of these gymnasts who are like staples in the community because of what they went through as athletes to get to that point. And, and you live, breathe, everything is gymnastics. I don't know much about other sports, but in terms of my conversations with my coaches growing up, everything was around gymnastics. And all, your coach was not only your coach, they were your parent, your teacher, your nutritionist, your weight coach, everything. I mean, they did it all. And it's hard because there's that stigma of this like very thin, very lean Soviet athlete. And that's not the case anymore. I mean, if you were to look up videos of Svetlana Korkina, she is like five, six and weighs like 85 pounds because that's the ideal that, that, that culture created for gymnastics. Now that that's shifted a bit, other cultures are starting to understand weight training is extremely important. Making sure your athletes' bodies are physically capable enough to do the things they're doing instead of this idealistic, very thin body type, it's all changing. But the whole Eastern European thing, you're really immersed in the athletic culture. Instead of going to practice, practice is like you are always at practice. And Peter, can I add something? There's two other things about the Eastern European method. One that Olivia liked, one she didn't like. Let me do the didn't like first. Olga insisted they do ballet twice a week. They hated ballet so much, the girls, the, the moaning, and then I don't want to go, and I hate it. But the I used to be sick for the first hour of practice. <laughs> right. I don't feel good, Dad. Um, the training, the ballet training, did what I will really say about part one of my answer. There's a precision to the Eastern European coach. I would say to Olivia, and we'd play a game when she would compete against another university, I'd say, okay, tell me if I'm right or wrong. This one from Oklahoma, Eastern European coach. This one from Florida, Eastern European. Almost every time, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. She'd be like, you got it, dad. You got it. I said, you can just see their next level in terms of how they compete, how they perform, and how each movement is finished before you go on to the next. And if you watch Olivia in any of her four apparatus, that's exactly what she did each time. No, and, and see, I'm I'm fascinated because in the Soviet in the Soviet method, there were five state I think five stages of athletic progression, with the elite level being master of sport, where people competed internationally or they competed at the Olympic level. And whether it's gymnastics, whether it's weightlifting, whether it's track, I, I've I've spoken with a few of these individuals over the years, and I am fascinated just by the way they train, the way they prepare, and really, if if you look at anybody that grew up in the Eastern European culture whether it was the Ukraine, whether it was, and now it's part of the Soviet Union at the time, but you belong to the state. I mean, just like you referenced, you belong to the state. And what's interesting, Jim, is I do a lot of work in Asia. I do a lot of work in China. And I, this now, Les Mills to me makes a lot more sense following this model. Because for years as a fitness instructor, I always created my own classes. I design my own classes. I teach my own classes. 
But for people that might not be familiar with it, Les Mills, you teach somebody else's choreography. You're given you're given a workout and you're saying, here, recreate it. But if for, for the people that came up in like a system like Olivia described, where they go to school to compete as athletes, that's what they know. Because once they're done with athletic competition, they move to become fitness professionals or personal trainers. So they make that transition. So I think I'm just trying to tie that in a little bit together just so people can understand that, um, that, that, that kind of how it all plays together. So for you, Olivia, coming up in that system, did you know that, did you sense the difference? Like, I, I love the reference that you just made with your dad being able to call out the different the different backgrounds because I think, Jim, you probably know movement, right? <laughs> your background yep. is knowing movement. But did you realize how, much, how different that was coming up in that system since you hadn't been exposed to anything else? Um, I did when I got older. I definitely did once I was competing at a higher level. Um, so once I got to like level nine or 10, which are the top two levels right before you make like the elite Olympic route, I really started to notice things that you wouldn't notice when you're, you know, when you're younger and you're doing a backhand spring on beam, as opposed to doing all these elaborate skills, when you're older, you really see the foundation. And I started recognizing that when I was about 15. And then when I went to college, I really noticed, I was like, wow, I really like we were just trained differently. We also were trained very creatively. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times my coach would give us like a prompt and say, you need to come up with X amount of skills and blah, blah, blah. And you need to put it all together in a routine. And a lot of times that creativity sparked a education because then we had to learn the rules and the system to say, okay, we have to make up X amount of tenths or points or whatever. How do we do that? And B, it allowed us to get direct feedback from our teammates and from our coaches to watch us and say, you needed to finish that movement more. Or why did you choose to combine these elements when you needed a different element? There was a lot of education behind how they coached. It was never do this. And if you complete it, you're done. There was always a lot of like workshopping within practices. And I really liked that. It also kept me on my toes and it wasn't boring. If you're going to compete the same routines every day, do you really want to only practice those routines? It's it's boring. And so they really kept it interesting and exciting for us. And I think that model of the Soviet coaching methodology is fantastic. Now, real quick, uh, before I, I want to ask Jim, I want to ask you a couple questions about your background and how that and, and the dynamic between you and Olivia. But first, I was fascinated. You compare Olivia the balance beam to a shot of tequila. How? What's that comparison? And how? How does how does a shot of tequila correspond with a balance beam? You know, Peter, I just outed myself because now people know I've taken a shot of tequila. But <laughs> you're um, overage, you're over twenty-one. I. That's true. This is not illegal. Um. So, in my college years of being a collegiate athlete as well as a um, eighteen to twenty-two year old woman, I learned that in high school, I never had the chance to go to a party or anything. So I really learned both how to be a gymnast in college and how to be a girl in college, a woman in college. And when I was sitting down, I was trying to write, I would do really well with visualization. And I did that a lot as a gymnast, but I was trying to visualize what the equivalent for someone who has never touched a beam, been on a beam, done anything pertaining to gymnastics could go, Oh, that makes sense. And I was sitting there and I was thinking about it and I was like, okay, what's the worst part about beam? A, the waiting, beam, the actual beam, and C, 
like the best parts being done with it. So I was trying to equate what is something that has three steps that two are pretty shitty and one, sorry if we're not allowed to swear on this podcast, and one is like good. And I was thinking about it and I went out with a couple of my girlfriends and naturally one of my best friends on the team made me take a shot of tequila. And I was like, so now I'm anxious, pretty bad. During it, it tastes heinous. But after it, I'm like, this is great. I feel great. So I was like, oh my God, it's like competing a Beamer team. And so I literally sat down and I started writing what it feels like to take a tequila shot, what it feels like to do a Beamer team. And I started equating it. And it is the closest thing that I can think of that equates to the anticipation, the actual process and the feeling of relief. It's the closest thing I can think of, unless you have actually done a Beamer team. And a few of my teammates who have read it were like, oh my gosh, my mind is blown. I was like, I know, because there's just something about that anticipation that is the worst part, standing there, literally watching your fate happen, watching them pour the freaking thing in the cup or watching the judge start writing and getting ready for you. It's horrible. That's part of, that's the worst part. And so I found that um, comparison to actually work for myself too. I was like, (laughs) nice job, kiddo. (laughs) When she gave it to me, I was like, wow. It was really impressive. And that was totally done on her own. Well, and it's so funny sometimes when you see your kids do something like that, right? You're like, wait, how'd you figure, even at her age, you're kind of like, wait, how'd you figure that out? You kind of sorted that out. Now, Jim, real quick, let's shift and and we'll come back to you, Olivia. But Jim, your background, I thought was very interesting. You're a fitness professional, but you've done a little bit more than that. How did you get started? How'd you become a, a personal trainer? And how did you get started with, with the line of work that you do, with, with the specific type of training that you do? Sure. Well, depending upon your age of your listeners, I'll say what I always say in speeches. I started my life wanting to become Blake Carrington from Dynasty. And along the way, I became Richard Simmons. And then I kind of blended the two. So I had a finance major from the Wharton School of Business. So this was the first, furthest thing from my mind. Um, long story short, a teacher didn't show up to an exercise class, an aerobics class back in 1986. I was so annoyed that they weren't there that I raised my hand and said, if someone's got the exercise music, I'll teach. I've memorized the routine. And as you and I both know, Peter, you never want to memorize an exercise routine. You always want to mix it up. And from there, a woman approached me at an aerobics class and asked me, she was from Beverly Hills, would I be her personal fitness trainer? I really didn't know what she was talking about but she said she'd pay me X an hour and I'd work with her one-on-one. And I have to say, I was at the right place at the right time. And my business school education kicked in because I realized there was a supply and demand issue. I got busy very quickly. So I thought I have to econ 1A, I have to start raising my prices. So I became one of the most expensive personal trainers at the time. I still am one of the most expensive personal trainers at the time. And so I just you know, went through the motions, started hiring staff, got the idea to write my first book, The Business Plan for the Body, which basically put together my education in business school and my, at the time, about 13 years experience being a fitness trainer. And that was book number one. And this book with Olivia is book number seven. So it's been, you know, it's been quite a ride. And like you, I speak a lot. And I was with ABC News for many years um, as their fitness contributor. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, that, and see, I think they're, they're, it's interesting to see that and what I love about that is, Jim, you were one of those people that, that got into the industry. The industry kind of found you. And there are a lot of people that I work with who are master trainers, like Kelly Roberts and Minnie Mel Ray and people whose paths you've probably crossed over the years, that, that the same thing kind of happened. And to be honest, that's how I ended up teaching my first class as well. I was 
I was working the front desk at a health club and some the the, the cycling, the, the indoor cycling instructor, what we call spinning, didn't show up. And I had taken maybe three classes and I was like, oh, yeah, I'll teach it. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I had no idea. But that was like 19, what was it, 1998. Yeah, it was the fall of 1998. It was right before I was going to take uh, my first spinning certification. So, yeah, you kind of fell into that. Now, I want to ask, if you don't mind, if you can stay here for a second, because I love the fact that you're a finance major. I was an econ, I was government econ in college. So I love the fact that scarcity, right? All we do as trainers is we deal with scarcity. We have 24 hours in a day and our job is how do we get the greatest return on the one hour that we have to spend with our clients? At least that's the way I look at it. Yeah. So when you wrote the business plan for your body, what was it that you're trying to convey to the audience? Because I love that concept. I, I get it. When I saw, when I was looking through this and I saw that, I'm like, that's perfect. But what are you trying to convey in business plan for your body? I was trying to speak the language of many of my clients. I stumbled upon a very affluent clientele in Chicago. A lot of the movers and shakers, CEOs, business owners, private equity people, venture capitalists, and I understood their lingo. So I thought if I could write a book that specifically speaks to an audience that understands this these, this, this framework, the chapter one was the mission statement. Every business has to write a mission statement. Chapter two is called the competition. I looked at all the competitive exercise theories at the time and I rated them. You know, chapter three was called going public. So I used all these, this business terminology that I knew my clientele and my audience for the book as I was putting it together. I was with Random House for my first book and how that would possibly be able to be absorbed by many, many people, because even it was published in 2001, our industry was so, so, so young. Uh, what, what else can I say? I mean, it was really, I mean, look where it's come in the last 20 years since I wrote that first book. So I try always with my audience, whether I'm speaking or writing, to put it in a framework that lets them understand it without being intimidated, without being off put by it. You know, we have to be careful in our industry because people think we're judging all the time. I always say, I'm not judging. All I want to do is help. Let me let me help you in any way you want to be helped. Well, I don't know. Just to stay on this for a second, but I don't know about you, Jim, but sometimes at social events, I don't tell people I work in fitness. I tell them <laughs> I'm an education consultant because what happens if you're at a social event, you, you tell somebody you're a personal trainer, what, what's the next thing that happens? Well, it depends how you do it. See, I use my social events to really get a lot of clients Well, yeah. because I would I would lift it way up. You know, and I would always say, you know, there's so many ways we love to help people. And this is not about six pack abs and about being a size zero. So I would immediately deflect what they were thinking like, oh, he's judging me. No, 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 not judging. It's about getting better. That's all that it is about. So I, but I do understand your theory because sometimes on planes, I never mention what I do for a living or I'm stuck next to this person for four hours. I just unloading everything I've ever learned on weight loss and fitness and anti-aging and all that. So I kind of keep, keep that on the down low. Well, because what happens a lot just for listeners is you're talking to somebody in a social engagement and you happen to mention you work in fitness and all of a sudden you get this sheepish look on their face, whatever they're drinking or whatever they might be snacking on kind of gets put down. They kind of get set aside gently and they, they say, well, you know, they give you some excuse about why they have or haven't worked out for the last. I mean, am I wrong about that? No, no, no. And if they're eating like a, a, a pig in the blanket or something like that, they say, oh, you know, I never eat things like this, but it was here tonight and it's a special event. So I'm just going to have one. I'm like, oh, enjoy, have one. And half the time, I'll, I'll pop one in my mouth, even though I don't like them, just yeah. to make them feel, you know, we're kindred spirits. Well, just like, and then we'll get back to because my ex-wife and I, at the start of every, when we worked together in Washington, D.C., we both worked for the same health club company. 
but we would have our Christmas party early on in the season on purpose because we wanted to give people the excuse to eat because what we we're trying to do is we we're trying to be more relevant to their lives in January. So they came back in January. So we always planned our Christmas party the first weekend of like the holiday season. And my ex is a big, she loves making the food and loves making the spread. But it was always like, hey, have fun for the next few weeks. We got you covered in January. That was part of our business plan. <laughs> I like that. No, I like it a lot. It gives people the license. It doesn't give them guilt. We're all ridden with guilt and self-loathing and self-deprecation and all those big words. So just give them the license to enjoy and then let's get back to business. Uh, yeah. I, and then because one thing I want to come back to you real quick is subjective. And because we could go on that that thread all day. But I want like to come back to you. Because because this kind, but it kind of ties in is that sense of judging. As you mentioned, judging. And as a trainer, as a coach, you're never judging anybody. You're just listening and you're evaluating and saying, okay, what can we do to take you a step forward? But Olivia, as an athlete, I've always been, I play different sports, whether you either get the ball across the line or you don't. There's no subjectivity. You either score more points than the opponent or you don't. <laughs> There's really, it's either A or B. As an athlete, how tough is it to be in a subjective sport like gymnastics where you are being judged and sometimes you're like, wait a minute, why? I got this on this routine when I did it two weeks ago. I did it almost the exact same way. Why am I now getting a different score? Can you talk about that well, a little bit about that subjective, that subjective ability? I can say as a Michigan fan, I will never forget the 2016 Ohio State-Michigan football game where the uh, there was some whole controversy over someone not making it over the um, first down line. Subjective. Football players, it's subjective, but um, okay, so judging, yes, very subjective. Um, part of the problem with it is that, sure, there's like a, a rule book, you know, there's, there's how many points is a basket, how many um, points is a goal, um, are you off sides? There are these things, and in gymnastics, sure, we have that too. You, um, if you do this really hard skill, you get points for it, blah, blah, blah. The subjective part comes in judging it. So say, for instance, you had a soccer player. What if they were judged on how they ran and that contributed to the over? And then if they make the goal, they get extra points at the end. It's like it's like a bonus. So do you it, how does it make sense that you don't judge a run to go into a goal? It's very weird. And I get really frustrated by it, clearly, because there's it's you're never all in front of the same judges unless it's nationals still then they may have started watching you in the beginning of the meet and saw your vault and went that was fine and later on in the meet someone does a vault that was significantly worse than the one they saw earlier but they're on a roll and they've decided to just give them x score it's not being judged against other people at that point it's being judged against what the judge likes because the judge makes the score not the person and the subjectivity can be really it, it's hard and it affects gymnasts. For instance, I did a routine once. Oh, goodness. I got the benefit of the doubt in this routine. I did a routine once that really, really was bad. I mean, I'm hard on myself, but this was really bad. And I missed numerous elements and it really shouldn't have scored higher than a 9.6. And I got a 9.875. Then I looked at the score and I was like, uh, that's just baffling to me. There was just no mathematical way they could have come about that. I got the benefit of the doubt, but you could look at that and go, how does that make the sport even enjoyable to watch? Because now I don't understand why that person got that score and why they won the meet. 
So it really can be tricky. And it turns a lot of people away from gymnastics, specifically college gymnastics, when there's this whole mentality that there's SEC scoring, meaning if you're from the SEC, you get leeway on a lot of things. It's a whole thing. And I wish I could unpack it more and explain why this is the case. But it's it turns a lot of people away from gymnastics and it makes it really difficult to watch and not very fun sometimes, honestly. But and that's interesting to hear because you're right. I, I love the fact that you looked around like, wait a minute, I got that on that routine. I stank, you know, but but what was it? Because that sets up the next question I have. And, and Jim, I, I appreciate your weighing in on this as a father. When you have a bad routine, how do you forget that and move on? Right. I'm, I'm going to use the Bill Belichickism. It's like, OK, we're on to Cincinnati, whereas mm-hmm. in, in sports, you don't want to think about your last play, your last pitch. You don't. You're on to the next thing. How do you? Excuse me. How do you? How do you set? How do you get develop that mindset of where if you're doing a if you're doing multi competitions in a meet, whatever you you might have blown it on four and you got beam coming up. How do you put that? How did you learn how to put that out of your mind in order to focus on the next thing? And Olivia, I'd like to hear your input. And then then Jim, if you have like how did as a father, how did you help her get to that level? So how did you do that, Olivia? How did you be able to move on to the next level to the next thing? took a lot of practice. Still don't think I could do it today well, as well as I could have, but a lot of, it's a mental game completely. And it's really difficult because you want to be upset. You want to go back in time and fix it. The thing about college gymnastics specifically that really changed that mentality for me is that it's a team. So six girls go up on each event, five scores count. Let's say I mess up, but no one else messes up. We have a great rotation. I'm super bummed. But the bottom line is that we didn't have to count a fall on the team. And you start to realize, what does it really mean to be on a team? Are you all just wearing the same leotard competing for a school? Or are you all helping each other and having people's backs to say, you messed up, but I got you. And now we don't have to count the fall. And let's move on as a unit, as one cohesive unit, and keep going to the next event. Because what if someone messes up and I have the opportunity to have their back? And that really changed my mindset. Because initially, I was just always so pissed. Can't believe I just did that. And it would ruin the rest of the meet for me. And so once I had that mindset of picking each other up and the team really can make or break this as a unit, as opposed to 15 individual women, that became the saving grace for me in picking myself back up. Now, I'm not going to say it's easy. It's impossible to turn your brain around completely and to say, Oh yeah, I fell, but like, eh, you know, whatever. We're all perfectionists. So we're going to be mad regardless. But the most, the best way to do it is to really just, sometimes we would like have like a fake trash can and like go like this and throw it in the trash can. Like as a physical way to just say like, we're done with that. Let's move on. It sounds silly, but it really works because you can see the physical get rid of it happen. And sometimes you have to do that or else you're going to be in your head for the rest of the meet and it's not going to go well. I love that. I love the trash can concept. And, and Jim, I'm sure as a younger, when, when she was a younger gymnast developing and maybe doing more solo stuff, how did you as a father, because I'm sure there were some days after me where she just was sullen and, and inconsolable. How did you, what, what steps did you try to get her to do to be able to say, hey, forget about that. It's done. It's behind us. Let's go forward. Well, there's two answers. Um, there are two phases to that question. Number one, while she was competing anytime, any place, any year, all her mother and I, and often her grandparents, her brother would do was smile and project positive energy. I'm really weird about this. I feel people can pick up on energy very much. 
and I would see the parents who were really tense and you'd look at their daughter, look up at them in the stands and they see that tension. We never wanted Olivia to see that. And to my knowledge, honey, we never showed that. I hope that we did it because we all were sick to our stomach when she did the bean, her nemesis. So we really tried to, to project the positive energy. Do you know, if she had a not so great meet in the car on the way home, I would always go in a roundabout way. I'd say, oh, Gabby didn't have a, such a great meet. How did she feel after bars? And that would get Olivia talking. So instead of asking her about her, I would ask about the teammates, some of the other people she competed against, because you compete in club regularly against the same other gyms. And so that way I didn't make her feel like, oh, we need to have a big talk about how Olivia felt after maybe a mess up, because quite frankly, Peter, no one was harder on herself than she was. So there was no reason to say anything or even get into the issue unless she wanted to talk about the issue and then handle it that way. I really do believe as parents, we have to really have our radar up, radar up to what we're getting, just like you and I with clients. What are we getting you know, right now? And then respond to that accordingly. But Olivia, was she was rough on herself. And so she well, just made it happen. Well, and I, that's, a, that's a perfect comment, right? Because I think as a dad, sometimes you see your kid get down on themselves and it's like, you just want to be like, hey, look, let's let's move on. This is yes, I know you can take a lesson from that, but but get them get them to move on. Um, now I want to kind of transition to that point of where she went from a, a like a, a club level gymnast to being somebody who now had potential to make it up and get what she did a scholarship. At what age did that did that shift happen, and and what did that mean for your your practicing for your schedule and just your overall lifestyle? Is this for me? For me? Either one. I mean, I guess. Well, Jim, actually, let me hear about it from your perspective. At what age did you realize, okay, this goes from being something we do after school to now we need to start building our schedule around her, her practice and her competitions? From when she was very young, she really dictated how our life, how all of us spent our time and spent our life. It revolved around her training, her school, her competitions, much to the chagrin of her brother with the chapter that he added. We knew nothing about scholarships. Again, because she was trained by an Eastern European coach, they don't know about university scholarships. A lovely woman who for a very brief period of time worked at her club gym, shepherded us through the process. I'll give you an example. After she won a big national title in eighth grade, what did you win, honey? It's a long time ago. <laughs> like it was, it was like, it was like in your, in your age range, it was number one at the nationals. It was national all around. Okay, it was a big deal for uh, your mother and me. It wasn't a big deal for you. So after that, Ellen, Ellen and I are divorced, um, gets a letter from the University of Michigan, and she sends me a photocopy. This is how long ago it is, and says, isn't that nice? The University of Michigan said that Olivia did such a lovely job in the competition. I said, oh, that is just really sweet. We were clueless, Peter, that they were starting to flirt with our daughter and wanting her as part of the team. Now it's happening even younger than eighth grade to some young women that I talked to their parents. So we really didn't know what was going on. We just knew she loved the sport. And we had an interesting um, situation when we started the college recruiting thing for the scholarships. I sat her down and said, look, Olivia, I understand this is your passion. I get it. But this is your, your education. These are your four years. You're not going to some less than school because she's a bright woman just because you've got a scholarship. I want you to make the priority of the school you're going to and make the gymnastics the second priority. So why don't you just walk on? And she points her finger at me and she said, no, I wanna to go to a school where they want me as much as I want them. 
Mm. And that school was Michigan. That was her number one choice from the get-go. So when we got the phone call that we give all the details in the book, when she was asked, do you want to be a Wolverine? Which I didn't know what a Wolverine was, by the way. <laughs> so again, my daughter's so embarrassed right now. She's looking down. Um, she was just elated. This is between sophomore and junior year. So again, I really didn't understand the process, nor did her mother. We just knew this was a passion. And from the parenting standpoint, just had to make sure she was going to go to the right school for her education and the right school for her passion and love. And what was it about Michigan, Olivia, that, that really, was it because, and I, I could see this kind of, you kind of get tunnel vision, was it because they were, quote unquote, your first one and they're the first one to reach out and say, we might be interested in you? Or what was it about Michigan that aligned to what you wanted to be able to do with both gymnastics and, and your education? So it, it's a little twofold. Um, first of all, I would turn on the Big Ten Network, just occasionally channel surf, and every single time I saw gymnastics, Michigan was competing. Mm -hmm. And I always had this idea in my head that Michigan is like the place in the Big Ten. And I'm a little bit of a homebody. My dad can attest to this. I definitely didn't want to be a flight away. I wanted to be close enough that my parents could come and see me and I could come see them. But they also couldn't come bother me for lunch on a Tuesday. I wanted a really nice balance. But something else that was really important to me was that my grandparents came to every single meet I competed at growing up, unless it was like a flight or far away. They did come to a bunch of meets um, and fly too, but I wanted to make sure my grandparents could come because it was really important to me. I have a very close relationship with my 92-year-old grandmother who's alive now and my um, late grandfather. They were real, I'm very close to both of them. And I knew that it would not be very often that they would get to come watch me compete if I was far away. And I know that sounds silly, but when you have something that gives you some sense of calm, my grandparents were part of that for me. I knew I needed that and I needed them to be able to come with my mom, dad, or my aunt who came to a lot of meets as well. So that was up there for me, but I also knew Michigan was just a top-notch school academically and athletically. And everyone who goes to Michigan they just bleed maize and blue. There's no, you're not half in, half out at Michigan. You are all in at Michigan. And when I walked onto the campus, it was just magical. Like it was one of those experiences where you felt like you were in a fairy land and it was just perfect. And I knew from the get-go, I'm going to go to this school. And I said to my mom who took me on the visit, mom, I'm going to go here. She goes, I know, honey, but we're, we're visiting a couple other schools. And I was like, no, 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 mom, like I'm going here. She goes, no, 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 no. Like we have to keep an open mind. I was like, I understand, but this is where I'm going. And I, that's it. I knew it. I'm really good about knowing what I like. And my, I'm, I have a good awareness of myself and I just knew it was the place. Peter, well, can I keep in here for a second? I have something I have to tell about. Olivia is a little bit of a good witch. So she color commentates for the big Ten network. And she literally says next to Dean Linky, who we adore, who she commentates with, Nat was going up on the beam. And Olivia says, I think Natalie's going to get a perfect 10. And Dean says, you know, Olivia, that's kind of a, a lot to say. And she goes, no, I, I just kind of feel it. Nat's going to get a perfect 10. What did she get? A perfect 10. Then when Michigan recently lost the Big Ten championship, how many years, Olivia, had they won in a row? I mean, you got all four rings. That six. It was six, six in Crazy. a row. So they lose the Big Ted Championship. And I say, oh, my gosh, Olivia, you must be devastated. She goes, no, they're going to win the NCAA this year. I said, they've never won. Or they've won once, you know, decades ago. How can you say that? Never won. I, I just feel it. I feel that they're going to be NCAA champs. And they were. So 
I have to trust that my daughter, I always, I, I invest a lot in the stock market and I'm always like, Olivia, what do you think of this stock? <laughs> I want to see if I, she can rub some of that good witch off on my investments. And so she just has a really good sense. And that sense prevailed when it came to where she wanted to go to school. Well, I was just about to ask, I might have to call you when uh, it becomes tournament time or when, when the NCAAs are playing and, and reach out to you and be like, hey, how do you feel about Michigan this weekend? What do you think, what do you think what are going to do? I mean, I know I won't hold you, I won't hold you to that, obviously. But that's a pretty cool st- – and I, I apologize for not being as familiar about Big Ten um, about Big Ten athletics. So does Michigan have a reputation – I mean, you won – you said six – a day or six years running. What was it about that that was appealing, joining that kind of that, – that, a team with that legacy? Did, was that something to hold up to? Did that push you to train harder? What was it like to, to be able to join a team with that caliber and those level of expectations? There's – at Michigan, we say Big Ten is it's our meat. We don't lose Big Ten. And um, my head coach at Michigan, Bev Plocky, is actually the most winningest coach in all of the Big Ten, any sport. She has won the most Big Ten championships of any sport, any team, any coach with 24 or five, I think 25. So there's a legacy there. And when you walk into the gym at Michigan, all of the banners for Big Ten champions are hanging from the ceiling. And you just see the history. You see their first Big Ten championship, which I don't remember the year, which is pretty bad. But they have all of the years they've won up hanging from the ceiling. And it's it's part of the magic because you see the history in the ceiling of the facility. And knowing Bev's reputation and knowing she is just a legend in NCAA gymnastics, specifically in the Big Ten, I knew I wanted to be pushed and I wanted to walk into a program that I had to be on my A game to do my best to continue this legacy. And part of the thing about it is so fun that you get to meet alumni, you get to experience their stories, talk to them about their experiences, and you kind of want to do it for them too. I mean, they, the people who won the first Big Ten championship, I want to continue their legacy. And I knew that was something I wanted to be a part of. Now, real quick, Jim, how does it feel as a dad? To hear your daughter like to to talk about this level of like um, this this level of kind of like what you instilled in her this whether it's drive or whether it's motivation because I'm sure your dad your dad pride has to be kind of busting a little bit right now. Um, that's a that that's an understatement by the way. Um, we have a big Karis verb and it's persevere. And Olivia just went after the sport, went after wanting to be a part of a team. I wanted her to go the elite Olympic route. She did not. Mm-hmm. And I, I capitulated, but definitely that was what I wanted, but it really wasn't right for her mentally or physically. I just wanted to see my daughter on the Wheaties box. I'm that generation. And so she really felt she knew what was best and she wanted very much to be a part of a team. She didn't want to be an independent solo gymnast, competitor, athlete. So I think all of that together and how she approached the team, I said to her once, oh, honey, you had such a great meet. She said, no, we didn't, dad. We didn't win. I said, yeah, but, but you had a great meet. She goes, I don't care about what I did. I care about what the team did. And I was like, oh, got it. This isn't just about her. This is all about the team. That's it. And that's how she's always been. That's why she's a great employee right now at her job um, because she works as a team. That's why, do you know that 94% of all C-suite females were athletes in college? 94%. That is absolutely a staggering figure when you think about it. But it, it totally made no. I mean, I, I hadn't heard that figure, but I'm just thinking of the executives of the female executives that I know, and that describes almost each and every one. If they weren't a, cle- a high performing collegiate athlete, they were a high performing high school or club athlete outside of the college 
Colin Spector. So real quick, I'm literally going to find a ton of articles about it. If you Google it, you'll find a ton of articles about it. It's the way that they know how to push themselves. They know how to face adversity. They know how to you know, be energetic when they're feeling down. It's all about the skills you learn as an athlete that you take right on up in a corporation and right up to the C-suite. It's cool. That, that, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And that gives me, I need, I need to call, it was actually uh, my, my kid's mother called me just now. And I'm like, I need to sit down and like, okay, let's, let's look at our, let's look at our athletic plan for our daughters. Cause everything got put on hold last year, obviously. Um, they're, they're elementary school, they're seven and nine. So I'm not, I'm not worried about it, that at all. But real quick, I didn't realize there are two different tracks between like going the Olympic route in gymnastics and going, saying, I want to, I want to be on a, on a college team. I want to do college gymnastics. I didn't realize there was that route. At what age, Olivia, did you make that decision to say, you know what, I think I want to do A and not B? I think I was about 15 or 16. Um, things are changing a little bit because when I was doing the college versus Olympic route, you really didn't do college and then go to the Olympics. It was kind of an and or. And the whole reason behind that is if you take sponsorship money and you go pro, you're not allowed to compete in college in the NCAA. And so now with there's all these new NIL rules with yeah. athletes can earn money for their name and likeness, but also a lot of the age of gymnast peaking is actually getting later. And that started with Allie Raisman, who went to the Olympics at 24, I think, her second Olympics. There's also an Olympic gymnast, Oksana Chusevitna, who's 40. So she wins. I don't know how the heck wow. she she's been to like seven Olympics. I'm like, <laughs> this woman's a god. But the age of competing in the Olympics is getting older. And Simone Biles is 24. She's my age. So she's older. But before it was like you had to be 16 or 18 or whatever. And so I think that is changing. But if you take sponsorship money, you are not allowed to compete in the NCAA, even with the new NIL rules. And so people had to decide, do I want to go to the Olympics and try to go pro and be a Nike sponsor? Or do I want to go to college and get the scholarship? Oh, interesting. No, and I, you're funny. You're bringing up a memory bubble I haven't had. I, I grew up in you know, right outside of Washington D.C. And Dominique Dawes was a few years behind. Dominique Dawes was the same age as my brother, so they were in. I think they're in elementary school and junior high together. Oh, cool. Before she, before she went off and did, and that's when she left school and, and focused on, um, the competition. And her older half brother was was two or three years older than me. And he was actually a pretty good skateboarder. He ended up, I don't know if people know this, but Dominic Dawes' half-brother ended up becoming the editor of Thrasher Magazine for a number of years, the skateboard magazine. Wow. So he had they, they kind of had that in the family. Now, looking to wrap this up, getting ready to wrap this up, what was what was the biggest surprise to you, Jim, about the whole college recruiting process from the parents' point of view? Because what was it? I, there's something in there that, that I was surprised at. Oh, I don't think I don't think the schools can actually reach out to the athlete. The schools have to co have to communicate with you. Like I, I had no, I had no clue about that. But what to you? What was kind of like the? Oh my goodness, this is happening. And and what was the biggest surprise about the whole being recruited process? Well, first again, we didn't really know what the process was like, and so when it started, we had someone guide us. This person at from her gym who we actually hired when she left the gym to like a consultant, like you use for a college consultant. Um, not like Operation Varsity Blues for real college consulting. And um, yeah, so, I was going to bring that up. But yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, I, well, I watched that um, HBO or whatever it is, Netflix. I mean, it's just brutal to watch that whole thing. And so it really was how the courtship goes. It's changed, but they, you could not contact them. They had to contact you. Ellen, Olivia's mom and I could not go up to 
the Michigan recruiters at one huge event that happens to be in Chicago every year because you're not allowed to approach them. We just saw them across the aisle and we kind of nodded to each other. So you had to play by these very strict rules, but we didn't want to do anything to negate Olivia's chance to go to the school of her dreams and compete in the sport of her dreams. So that's where we, I mean, parents now really know you need to know the rules because they're constantly changing. Don't make a mistake. No, that's very good to know. And so that, that brings up as we get ready to wrap up, why did you guys write Confessions of the Division One Athlete? What do you think, what do you want people to, to, to take away from, from reading the book? I, I would say that you go. Olivia. Oh, go dad. Go, 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 go. Of course you go first. I talk too much. You do. It's okay. Um, I would say <laughs> the biggest thing for me is to inspire others to tell their story. Everyone has a story. Everyone has a unique perspective on things. Someone might've had a completely different uh, experience in the exact same sport and everything that I did. And so I think it's really important that we're hearing a bunch of different perspectives. So tell your story, but also just like recount some of your memories. I kept a journal um, growing up and in college and rereading some of it is hysterical. So it's actually quite fun to relive those moments like when you're much far removed from the sport um, and it brings you back, but it also reminds you how much you've grown up. So I would say if anything, I hope this book gives people motivation to sit down pen to paper or even like turn your phone on on a video and talk about your day. Just recount it because people do want to know and people want to hear about it and learn your story. Cool. So for me, Peter, uh, about five years ago, Olivia was asked to speak at a mother-daughter event for a client at the time and a friend. And it was just mothers and daughters. And Olivia came to me a week before and said, Dad, I'm really nervous. What am I supposed to say? So I came up with the idea because I'd interviewed people on television for years that I would do an interview, that I would ask her questions that she wouldn't know in advance and she'd answer very honestly. So after this, really, it went very well, successful interview. Maybe the part about some of your boyfriends didn't go so well. You, you, you can say whether it did or didn't. <laughs> She's rolling her eyes. Listeners, there's um, a big eye roll. For, yeah, the... a big eye roll, big eye roll. Um, a, a lot of the mothers I knew socially or as clients. And they say, you know, when we drove home, my daughter and I had the most fascinating conversation because we were so honest and raw about our experience as father and daughter, as parent and child. It opened up the conversation. So my goal is completely for parents and their athlete to each take a look at the book and really think, huh, are they raising some good points that we should be talking about? Are we willing to have our family life morph around this one child and this one specific passion? Where is this going to take he or she? How are we going to deal with the mental and physical things that constantly are happening to athletes competing at this level? So my goal is to open up the conversation. And it is wonderful with our timing that so much of that is happening in the athletic community. We hope we just make that push that whole momentum that much farther with this book. No, I, I think that's very important. I mean, you, you mentioned, Olivia, name, image, likeness. We have that whole scandal that happened a few years ago. And I think that's such an unfortunate thing because I think there's so many people out there. Not only there's so many deserving kids out there that deserve scholarships, but there's so many athletes like yourself, Olivia, who've trained for years for the opportunity to do that. And to have somebody kind of take it the wrong direction is, is, is gut-wrenching with that. Now, as we wrap up here, and I want to give you guys can give the plug about where your information is. 
I saw this picture. For listeners, I'm holding up the picture in front of the video camera. And, and Jim, I, I, I just, I'm, I'm in your corner on this. Olivia, this is going to be like OG, an OG's moment. But for everybody, for everybody that can't see this, this is a picture on the back of the book of a, the, Jim. Uh, you're holding Olivia's hand, and Olivia's probably what about two years old in this picture. Yes, and and she looks like Cindy Lou Who from the back. So there I am at 40 because now I'm 60, and her exactly at about two, two and a half, something like that because she was tiny for a long time. I remember that picture. It's very special to us. And when we first talked about the book with this editor I've worked at before, worked with before, she saw the picture and just said that is a must be included in the book and it ended up on the back cover. We wanted that, Peter, to show people that look at that powerful woman flipping over on the front cover and then turn around and realize she was a little girl at one point holding my hand. And this is the whole evolution. That's what the book is all about is all those years in between. And I see this as a father because I tell my daughters this, I tell friends of mine, female friends of mine this, no matter what, Olivia, no matter how old you become, no matter how successful you become, no matter what you accomplish in this world, your father always, this is the image seared into his brain about you and him together. So anytime that he might seem a little overproductive, I'm just saying this as, as somebody, as, as a third party, and, and Jim, I'm in your corner on this, anytime your father might seem a little overprotective, anytime you might roll your eyes and say, dad, your father has this image in his mind of you being two years old, wrapping your whole hand around his two fingers as you walk down the street. So I just why I saw that and it, it touched my heart because those are my favorite images of, of, of my daughters. And I just wanted to be able to point that out to as a young woman who's who's succeeded at an extremely high level already. Congratulations, but that's the way your father always pictures you. <laughs> so true. And so what, where can people find out information about Confessions of a Division One Athlete? How can they connect with you or get more information? Jim, you do a lot of speaking. Olivia, are you doing speaking as well? Are you doing any of the dinner tour circuit? A little bit of the dinner tour circuit. I'm always, I'm always uh, open to talk and hear about people's stories. And Peter, you can find us at karasconfessions.com. That's K-A-R-A-S confessions. Dot com and you there's more all of our press is on there information about the book lots of other pictures ways to get in contact with us we love the fact that we are getting people writing in and sharing their stories olivia had a woman who was the first year bev was the coach in gymnastics write us a beautiful email that she just finished the book so we love hearing from people so don't hesitate to reach out to us I, that, uh, I appreciate it. And guys, I thank you for your time so much. And finally, last question, Jim, and it's completely off the rails here. How often do you get mistaken for George Clooney? Because oh I'm going to be so, so pissed now because of that. Because whenever anyone says that to me, I've caused a stir on um, Faubourg St. Honoré in Paris. That All these girls were running after me. It happens every now and then. And yes, I get the George Clooney thing. And yes, I met him once and he was charming. So I can honestly say he was very nice when I said to him, people actually think we look alike. He goes, well, I think that's a compliment to both of us. It's, I think so too. <laughs> so he was totally cool. <laughs> and, and do you get that question, Olivia? Do you get, do, do, do you get the question of, of what, what's George Clooney doing here with any of your friends? <laughs> well, I, he did once we were walking down our street and a car was zooming past us and we were all like, oh gosh, that's crazy. And they stopped and these women came running out screaming, George Clooney, George Clooney. And I took their picture. I hope it's on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> guys, thank Jim and Olivia Cares. Uh, the book is Confessions of a Division One Athlete, and uh, you, dead ringer for George Clooney. So uh, you guys, you've been extremely successful in your own right. I shouldn't say that. So guys, thank you for your time and uh, for the opportunity to join me on the podcast. Thank you, Peter. Now, just so you know, I ended that interview. If you look, if you go on the Amazon, and I'm going to have the link down below in the show notes. If you go on the Amazon page and you look at the book, the back, the back of the book really spoke to me as a father. And any father out there, you, any, any girl dad out there, you know exactly what I'm going to say. You know exactly what I mean when I say what I'm going to say. And for any young woman out there, any woman out there, I guarantee that your father feels the same way. But here's the thing. When you, look, when you look at that picture on the back cover of a young, maybe two or three-year-old Olivia holding her father's hand, I'm going to get a little emotional even just thinking about that. As a girl, dad, that's how we think of you. You're always, I don't care how old, how successful, I don't care what, anything you achieve, and, and women can achieve anything in this world. I firmly believe that. But as a father, as a girl, dad, we're always going to look at you in your success. You're going to be that little two or three-year-old girl wrapping your entire hand around our two fingers. And that's what I want. That's, that's, that's really why I want to have this conversation with them is because I want to hear that dynamic, right? I mean, we all, as parents, I want to hear that father-daughter dynamic. As parents, we all want our kids, girls, boys, and, and transgender. We want our kids, whoever our kids decide they want to be, we want to see them achieve at the highest level of success of what they put it to, right? Of what they want to achieve. And that's really, that's what interested me about this conversation about this book is that Olivia was driven. It was her decision to pursue this. It wasn't her parents sitting there, go for it, push it. In fact, I would agree with Jim. There are probably days where he's probably like, like you know what? You could probably back off a little bit. He knows how exercise stresses the body. He knows how competition can be excessive amounts of stress. And that's why I wanted to hear from his point of view about how, as somebody who's an elite personal trainer himself, Jim is very well regarded and he works with a number of high-level, high-profile clients. I wanted to hear how he navigated that landscape of work. We know that gymnastics is extremely brutal. Brutal. You heard the description about how injured Olivia was or is. It can be a brutal and competitive sport. Now, as a girl dad, I'd rather have my girls play field hockey, lacrosse, rugby, parkour, rock climbing, almost anything except for competitive gymnastics. And I'm saying that kind of whatever sheepishly. I don't really care. As long as my kids, my goal as a parent is to help my kids become physically active. However they decide to do that, just like Jim with Olivia, I'm going to support them 100%. Also, this, this was a fun interview to have right around the Olympics because over, as the 2020-2021 Summer Olympics get started, we're going to be seeing the stories of many families like this of kids who worked hard, of kids who worked to achieve certain things or really pushed themselves to function at a high level. And again, I wanted to give us an insight into what it takes from both the parents and the kids' point of view to achieve that. that that's why I thought, that's why I think this is a unique book because it's not just the parent talking about what he or she did to help the child. And it's not just the child talking about from his, her point of view. But as you heard them say, it's from the entire family. She had a lot of input, he had a lot of input, and the rest of the family had a lot of input as well. So I invite you to check it out, Confessions of a D1 Athlete. There'll link, be a link down below in the show notes. If you want more information about how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life, 
visit my website, PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's PeteMcCallFitness.com. At my website, you can sign up for my mailing list. If you sign up for my mail list, I will send you a chapter from my book, Smarter Workouts, along with a bodyweight workout that you can do anywhere you take your body. And you'll receive one or two high-quality emails a month, helping you learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. Check out the All About Fitness podcast channel on YouTube. The video will be, for this interview will be posted there shortly. And as always, thank you for stopping by. And I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.